So this morning I'd like to continue with the exploration of the four truths, the four noble truths or ennobling truths, truths which help with the whole process of learning and transformation. Today I'd like to focus especially on the first two truths. Last time we gave an overview, or I gave an overview of the four truths and situated it in the context of the life of the Buddha. And today I'd like to focus on the first two and next week focus on the third and fourth and, and tie that to our own continued practice during the week, our own exploration of, of, of how these um, appear in our lives, how we might practice. Um, how many people worked to some extent with applying the, this teaching in your personal life during the week? That's great. And we, what I want to do is um, work with the time so that we have um, considerable time at the end to share what we found, to ask questions, and so forth. And on the handout are some suggestions of ways to practice, and some more will come out of uh, the talk today. Because what I'd like to do today is I'd like to begin in a moment with a short guided meditation to... to um, bring us in touch with this material to some extent, then I'd like to review some, the overall teaching of the four truths. Then thirdly, look at the first and second truths together. And lastly, give a set of guidelines for working with the whole area of, uh, of dukkha or uh, what's usually translated as suffering. How do we work with, how do we work with that? And I'll give some, this, I'm going to give five or six guidelines which can be concretely used to help us work with it during the week. So that's my intention for this morning. But first I'd like to, please, there's a handout right here. If anyone didn't get it, uh, you could come up. And that lists some uh, various resources um, if you'd like to do some further readings, it has some websites, and then I also give um, some concrete practices, some ways to work with this um, teaching. So first, though, let's do a few-minute guided reflection on this theme. The four truths are the truth, and they're, they're taken to be truths because they can be, in some ways, uh, realized in, in each of our lives. They're not truths as abstract propositions that we should accept, but rather as fundamental experiential realities that we can investigate. And the first truth is the truth that there is suffering or some kind of off-centeredness that appears in our lives at different times. The second is that there is a fundamental cause to why we have that experience of being in suffering or off-center. The third is that there's, that there's a deep kind of peace that's possible, that suffering is not the last word on the human condition. And the fourth is that there's a practical path of transformation to move from suffering to peace or freedom. 
So we could say that the first two truths are about suffering and its cause, and the third and fourth are about freedom or peace and its cause. So the reflection, first I want to invite you to bring to mind an area that you might have explored in the last week where there's some difficulty. Again, you can use your own language. Um, For some people, the words pain and suffering aren't the best words to use. But So use your own language, but some kind of difficulty or stress, sense of being off-center, not being quite right, challenging, difficult, but particularly where there's some reactivity in the mind or heart or body. Could be a physical difficulty or area of pain, an interpersonal tension, an area of your life where there's some stress or challenge. But particularly an area where it's hard, where there's some, particularly some reactivity, some sense of not being in balance. Try to get a sense of, first of all, what this experience is like. What does it feel like in one's body or emotions or mind? How have you typically experienced this area of your life? Can you sense what's been helpful in responding to this area? Can you sense what hasn't been helpful? Is it possible to know what the area of pain or difficulty is in itself before there's been any reaction? So, for example, in an interpersonal interaction, there might be some sadness or fear or anger. Can you distinguish between that and how we might tend to be reactive and have those reactions proliferate?
And lastly, what would be a skillful way to work with this difficult area? So first, a brief review of this teaching. As I mentioned last time, this teaching of the Four Noble Truths or the Four Ennobling Truths is right at the center of the teachings of the Buddha. They're the first teachings that he uttered after his um, time of awakening. And as I mentioned last time, he at first didn't think that he should teach. He thought that the insights which he had were too simple and no one would really believe him that, that there's a sense in which um, the roots of suffering, he says, are from this compulsive or unconscious grasping or pushing away and that the act of letting go of that grasping or pushing away is a way to transform suffering. He said, it's too simple. People want complicated metaphysical doctrines They want advanced yogic practices. No one will believe me. I'll just stay in my own happiness. And then the, as the legend goes, the Lord of the Gods comes down and says, please teach. (laughs) There are some with but little dust over their eyes. They often come on Wednesday mornings. (laughs) They will hear, they will listen. They will practice. They will find ways to develop community to support them even towards the end of the week. <laughs> and, and the Buddha said, okay, <laughs> I will teach. And he, he, he answered the response of Brahma and said, I will teach. And then his first teaching was this teaching of the four truths, this teaching about the reality that there is suffering that there's a core cause to the suffering in this kind of compulsive grasping and pushing away, and that freedom or peace is possible, and that there's a practical path. And in a way, this is, um, even though the teachings of the Buddha were accused of being pessimistic or emphasizing the negative, because the first truth that we start with is the truth of suffering, you know, and you know, who wants to start there? You know, but in some ways, you can see that the teaching is actually quite optimistic. It really points to the possibility of suffering not being the final story about human life. And this is contrary to much of what we've had in, for example, in the 20th century in Western culture. If you think of someone like uh, Freud, you know, for all his wonderful insight and breakthroughs, he was not optimistic about being able to go beyond suffering. He said the best that one can hope for 
is to be a well-adjusted neurotic person. <laughs> Which is not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> and some of the other great, you know, great philosophers and psychologists in the 20th century who think of uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and the existentialists, they really pointed to the way that human life is basically pretty rough. And they did, you, it would not be accurate to say they had an optimistic picture of human life. <laughs> you know, I remember Sartre said at one point, uh, I remember the French actually, said, l'enfer c'est les autres. That means um, hell is other people. <laughs> somewhat of a pessimistic view of human relationships. <laughs> and so the, the teaching of the Buddha is actually quite optimistic, even though it starts with suffering. That's very good to bear in mind, because today we're going to talk about suffering and its cause. And it's good to remember that optimism, because it, you could be asking yourselves, even in the guided reflection, why should I look at suffering? Why not look at the beautiful hills? And they're actually uh, both... Um, appropriate. <laughs> but the, the teaching here is that the suffering of our lives, both ordinary and minor and everyday, as well as the really big kinds of difficulty or suffering, are workable. And in fact, that our deepest nature is not the reactivity to suffering and the experience of suffering, but that it's something that is more identified with peace and understanding. And it's that, um, that view which is more expressed in the third and fourth truths. So it's really important to remember as we uh, consider the first and second. The Buddha also said that this teaching is so fundamental, and I, I mentioned last time how he framed it in terms of the common medical model of his time, which is that when you look at a problem, you have to ask, what's the problem? What's the cause of the problem? What's the solution? And what's the way to get to the solution? And that was, that's really the model for the four truths. It's a very simple model that can really be applied not just to personal experience, but to any situation. Uh, and again, it's a very simple and in a way elegant uh, analytic model to, to use for this variety of um, situations. The Buddha also said that it is a tremendous focus that the, you know, again, we can get very distracted in their lives and not know what to do. And using this teaching is a way really to focus on how to bring transformative practice to the moment in any moment of experience. That it's a powerful way to remember and not be distracted. He said, for example, once in at talking to the monks and nuns, he asked them, uh, what, O oh monks and nuns, is greater? The leaves in my hand, he was holding a few leaves in his hand, or all the leaves of the forest? And they answered back, as it is in the text, in unison, the leaves in the forest are more, Buddha. <laughs> and he says, that's right. <laughs> and he says, but just so, the, lead, the few leaves in my hand are all that you need for freedom. The leaves in the forest are, as it were, all of that has occurred to me in this deep, powerful awakening. And the, the mind heart of a Buddha 
it is incredibly extensive, but I can condense that into these four truths, and they are adequate for bringing one to freedom. And he, so he talked about the four truths in that context as being like the handful of leaves. So what are the, particularly the first and second truths? Remember the, the third and fourth truth is that there's some kind of peace possible and there's a practical path. The first and second truths are that we have to admit the reality of suffering, of being off balance, whatever language we want to use. And I mentioned last time how the word in the Pali language is dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, and that it's etymologically related to an off-balance wheel, like on a cart in, at the, in, in the uh, India of the times. And so we could, if, if suffering is not a translation that works for you, you could also use the translation of off-centeredness, unsatisfactoriness, some people you even use the word stress, you know, some kind of quality of being off-center. And I like the, this very powerful teaching called the teaching of the two arrows as a way to be more precise about what's meant by this suffering. Because I think that suffering is not the same as pain. And that's a very important point. Because it's, it's not saying that pain or unpleasant experiences is the problem. But rather, the Buddha said, we all experience pain. We all experience unpleasant experiences. It's part of what it means to be a human being. We all have the susceptibility to injury. We, have, we get ill at times. We have eventually to face the reality of our own mortality. We also have interpersonal tensions and frictions. We live where there is sometimes injustice or oppression or war or conflict and so forth. And it's part of the human condition to have that quality of unpleasant experience. He said that's the first arrow. We all are shot with the first arrow. But what happens is that so often because there's the first arrow, we shoot ourselves or others with a second arrow reacting to the unpleasant experiences of the first arrow. And he says, the aim of our spiritual practice and the aim of our transformative practice, personally or interpersonally or even as a society, is not to shoot the second arrow. And that's so, so that gives us, a, we might say, a more precise account of what suffering is. It's not the same thing as pain. Again, if pain is overly interpretive for you, you can simply use unpleasant, experience, or whatever, again, whatever language works for you. What it points to is that what the first and second truths are um, identifying is a quality of reactivity in relation to what's happening. We could say a kind of resistance to the present moment. It particularly is apparent when we have what we call pain when we have unpleasant physical experiences, unpleasant emotional experiences, um, conflict, and so forth. And in, in, in the text, we off, the Buddha often says that this is what is the nature of dukkha. But I think we, if we look more deeply, we can see that the, the problem that's being pointed to is this reactivity to experience that, that takes us from 
just experiencing, let's say, an, an unpleasant conversation with someone and then being preoccupied by it for uh, 48 hours, at least. <laughs> at least, or years, or until we, you know, unpleasant experiences from childhood that we only look at in 10 years of therapy at great cost later. You know, so the, but so it seems to be what we're being invited to look at is how we shoot that second arrow, how we take a given experience and proliferate reactivity around that experience. And I, I want to suggest that it's that quality of reactivity which is at the root of dukkha, of suffering. It's not the actual experience of pain itself. And as we do, as we do more practice, we can actually see that this is a very subtle and profound teaching. It's, it's really pointing to the quality of there being an inherent deep quality of peace in our being. And that every moment in which we kind of compulsively push away a given experience is a kind of suffering. Actually, when we reach in a compulsive way after pleasant experiences, that also is a kind of suffering. And this is, I think, what um, is the more subtle dimension of this teaching. And I think when we have a level of uh, peace or restfulness or understanding ourselves, we can sometimes see how even the grabbing after pleasant experiences is a kind of suffering. Again, not what's first talked about in this teaching, but I think the deeper dimension of this suggests that any time that we're reactive, even when we're grabbing hold of something pleasant, when I'm trying to uh, you know, make sure that somehow that um, you know, I get what I want from my friend you know, uh, by being very tense about this happening or not happening. Even when it's something pleasant, there's a kind of inner suffering there. And that's, again, that's a subtle dimension. So I would tend to interpret these first two truths, even though they're framed especially in terms of unpleasant experiences. And then the second truth is framed in terms of grasping. Uh, I think we have to interpret that as really the first truth really being about the sense of reactivity, this reaction of the body, the mind, to something that's occurring, resistance to the present. And then the second truth being about this um, quality of either grabbing in a compulsive way for something that's pleasant or pushing compulsively something away. Because if we would, if we would look um, at the logic of the teaching, it's really both that the Buddha is pointing to, even though he frames the first truth particularly in terms of the unpleasant qualities there. And he frames the second truth, interestingly, in terms of grabbing hold of the pleasant. You see, that's how it's framed. But it's really the deeper truth is that it's any way that we go, either towards the pleasant or unpleasant in some reactive way, is a kind of suffering. We tend to notice the unpleasant much more easily, right? So that's why in the teaching, the Buddha says that it's particularly these very strong experiences of pain or illness or, or death that sort of wake us up. But as we look into this in a more subtle way, 
we can see that it actually has to do also with the pleasant. Again, not what we'd usually think, that, that pleasant experiences can be linked to suffering. Although actually, I think actually as we look more deeply, we know that that's the case. Now, please. So the, the first arrow could be an intensely pleasurable experience. It could be. And the second arrow could be thinking, I've got to have grasp yeah. more of this. Yeah. Okay. I, think, I think it's helpful to look at, as it were, the more subtle way that this teaching could be communicated, and then the fact that it's, it's particularly the unpleasant experience that sort of wake us up to how this is happening. And that tends to be the case. Although, you know, it might be, you know, we might be woken up to that by pleasant experiences, uh, by, you know, I don't know, getting a new car and then being incredibly anxious about it getting scratched or, you know, local dogs doing their business on the hubcaps or whatever. <laughs> whatever might be the concern. I personally haven't had a new car for a while, so I haven't had that experience, but some of you may have. Um, so so it's, it's, uh, it's really both, but it's particularly the unpleasant experiences that sort of wake us up and that are actually seem to be more difficult to work with. And that's primarily what I'm going to focus on. And it's also important, I think, to see that this quality of dukkha occurs personally, it occurs interpersonally, and it occurs in the society. And the same conditioning that doesn't want to get close to what's painful is there in all these domains. That personally, um, what psychologists tell us is that we sort of form this set of defenses around ourselves at a very young age so that we don't have to experience what might have been painful when we were young. And most of what we call our defense mechanisms, you know, that I don't want to, I don't want to go near that territory or that we find ourselves when someone is maybe accusing us of something, you know, it's, it's almost like our judgments come up as a way to ward off those comments. And they may be connected with this area of pain that may have been there from a very young age. And we can see that um, interpersonally we often don't want to deal with um, unpleasant situations. Think of how in your family or at work there may be a very um, difficult time to actually deal with what's painful, that we somehow ward off what's painful. I know in some organizations that I've been part of, any painful areas were sort of the, the organization pretends that they don't exist. Has anyone ever experienced this? <laughs> you know, that we don't deal with interpersonal conflicts, that there have maybe been interpersonal conflicts, but when we have a meeting, we pretend as if they don't exist. Even though, and this is what's key, even though it's the underlying pain which might be driving a lot of the dynamics of the meeting. That's what's interesting, isn't it? That it's because the idea basically is that when we don't actually face what's unpleasant or difficult, that energy almost um, drives us. You know, whether it's the painful experiences from being when we were young that we kind of unconsciously say, I never want to experience anything like feeling abandoned by my parent. And so when I get into intimate relationships, I'm petrified about the slightest hint of being abandoned, right? We call that sort of the Again, the sense that set of defense mechanisms that would ward off potential pain. Or in an organization, we have these 
elephants in the middle of the room that no one wants to look at, right? That everyone knows they're there, everyone knows they're kind of organizing our and driving our experience. Or that might be very similar to how in society we don't want to look at certain kinds of pain. We don't want to look very much, for example, at the racism of the past and the present, even though in some ways we know that the inability to really look carefully at slavery and the legacy of slavery is driving tremendous number of social problems even at this very present time, even though the, event, even though the events happened over, what, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And that there's a lot of ways that this teaching of the two truths can really be applied to interpersonal life as well as to social life. So part of working with these truths is just to start to be able to open up and see what's there. Where are the areas where I find myself becoming reactive? Is it possible to really open up in a direct way to what's unpleasant and transform my tendencies to be reactive, to learn better how not to shoot the second arrow? And I want to finish by just mentioning a set of guidelines which can be helpful, I think, in working with um, what we call suffering or reactivity. And I want to mention these as uh, six guidelines for working with, with these difficult experiences. The first is that gradually we learn how to open up to what's unpleasant or what's painful. We learn gradually to be present with what's painful. Secondly, we train we can consider that we're all in training and we train in these truths by learning to open up to the smaller areas of pain. We don't start with the big ones, we start with the small ones and we train there. And that's a lot of what we do in our meditation. And I'll I'll come back to each of these briefly. Third, sometimes it's wise to go directly into what's difficult or painful and be present with it And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's wiser to apply a kind of antidote, to get ourselves more balanced, to go to accentuate the positive rather than go into the difficult or unpleasant. The fourth is that a lot of the learning occurs when we notice what the nature of our reactive patterns are. And so a tremendous amount of the emphasis of mindfulness is to really study ourselves, how we're reactive with with this particular friend, with this group of people, with this president, with this knee pain. The fifth guideline is an interesting one. It's that in the long run, it's actually less painful to open up to what's painful. In the long run. In the short run, it's not. (laughs) In the long run, it is. And the last is that there, there are tremendous gifts that actually unexpectedly occur when we open up to what's difficult. And these are the gifts of compassion, the gifts of safety, the gifts of wisdom and understanding. So I'll just go over those briefly, and then we'll, we can open up and share some of what we've explored. The first is that we learn better to open up to what's painful or, or unpleasant. And part of what we do in meditation, again, is we can see the being present and noticing the knee pain or the sadness as a kind of training. We work 
and again, this is really to bring in the second point as well, we especially get training by working with small areas of pain or difficulty. And sometimes we get bigger ones in our experience, but a lot of the training occurs from, okay, I have this mild um, anger I get about this coworker, and it's coming up in my meditation. How do I actually sit with it, be present to it, feel what it's like, feel what it's like in my body, feel what it's like in my heart, notice the thoughts. How do I study it? And a, lo- and, and a part of what we do in meditation is to study what's difficult or unpleasant. We also study uh, what's pleasant. You know, and we, uh, some of what we experience in meditation is we, 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 we actually find that we perhaps never before have really looked carefully at either what's unpleasant or pleasant because we're always kind of preoccupied with manipulating the situation to get more pleasant and to avoid the unpleasant. And so we actually sit. And I was amazed both to say, okay, what is it actually like when I have a knee pain and I'm sitting in meditation? I've never really looked at it before. Oh my gosh, my mind at first when I studied it, my mind's going a little crazy. It doesn't like it. Get out of here. Get out of your knee pain. Maybe I should just shift instantly. No one will notice. <laughs> you know, or how long is this meditation going to last? And, but we also get to look at the pleasant. And one of my um, first you know, wonderful insights was how, in retreats, how wonderful cold broccoli could taste when I really paid attention, let alone warm broccoli, let alone a cookie, um, and so forth, that, that there was actually, uh, there's actually an invitation to look really directly at the experience and not to go so much by the conditioning which has already predecided what I should be experiencing and what I shouldn't be experiencing. Rather, there's an invitation just to look and to see if I can come out, uh, can live my life more out of wisdom than out of conditioning. And so we we start with this training with the smaller, the smaller pains, and we learn to be with them. We learn, okay, let me just instead I find my mind with this contentious situation, going instantly into judgmental thoughts, let's say. Can I really just sit with this and feel, okay, what's really there? Oh, there's anger. What's that feel like? What's that feel like in my body? Can I just hang out with that? Can I be present with that? And so in that way, it's kind of almost like entering into, again, almost into the world of the child, where the child actually experiences deeply what's happening and moves on. Somehow we learn as adults to not experience what's happening, develop a lot of thoughts, and never move on. <laughs> I'm exaggerating some, but there's, there's some truth to that. And, and so we, we really we study that. The third guideline was sometimes it's wise to go directly into what's unpleasant, but sometimes it's wise to apply an antidote. The, the key here is can I be looking at what's unpleasant with some degree of balance? It doesn't have to be great balance. But can I be really um, attentive to my sadness or to the physical pain and have some degree of balance? If I can, then it can be very wise to be mindful, to be aware. If I can't, if I'm really just way out of balance, then what's important to do is to do that which helps us come back to balance. It might be to be with beauty, cultivate the positive, the joy, it might be, you know, in a given situation, it might be to study, to have more understanding of what's happening. 
might be to talk with a friend and so forth. But I think it's helpful to have that discrimination. It's not always the best thing just to plunge headlong into what's difficult. I think we know that, but I wanted to say that anyway. Um, the fourth guideline is that we, the learning comes especially by noticing the patterns of reactivity, how we shoot that second arrow. And, and a lot of it's quite personal. So the, the invitation in terms of this first and second truth is to really study the patterns of reactivity in oneself quite intimately, over and over again. And that's really where a lot of the learning occurs. It's not by noticing it once, but by noticing it many times so we start to become familiar. So we start to say, oh, here am I with this kind of person. I think usually when that person makes a sarcastic comment to me about my wardrobe, I go there. <laughs> and, and we might uh, then, you know, you know, be at a party and think, oh, okay, there's that kind of person there. This is very possible to happen. I'm just going to watch my reactive pattern starting. And when we start doing that, we, ha- we, we begin to have some freedom so we don't have to always go there because we know it so well. So it's this deep personal inquiry into our patterns. The fifth guideline is that in the long run and sometimes in the short run, there's actually less pain by attending to what's painful than if we don't attend to it. This is paradoxical, right? That somehow we can, and I I think we all know this in some way, sometimes we know I just have to have that discussion. If I don't have it, I'll, you know, if I don't have this discussion with my friend with whom there's a conflict, I will be preoccupied by it for the next three months I'll think about it all the time. It's a chronic low-level suffering rather rather than anything painful. But it will still happen. And this is kind of, I think this is kind of the way it is, that we, when we don't look at things, we get into that situation like I was describing, where we have the organizational workplace which doesn't want to look at the painful interactions and we stay in chronic low-level discomfort for years. And so it's actually if we can skillfully open up to what's painful, it's often, in the long run, less painful. No one believes this. or Few of us believe this, right? Whether it's an organization or a person or a society. We just say, I don't want to look at what's painful. I don't want to go there. And yet, what happens? We get locked into these chronic patterns, which can last for years, whether, again, whether we're a society, an organization, or a person. And so it's, it's, a very, it's quite mysterious that we can actually sometimes be with what's painful and it's, it sort of frees us. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to do that. I could, I could tell some stories about that, but I think I'm going to just go on to the last one and then open things up. And the last, the last point is that when we actually open directly to what's difficult, it often brings gifts that, again, mysteriously and paradoxically, opening to what's difficult, not shooting that second arrow, can lead to greater understanding, compassion, and safety for others in that we're no longer shooting the second arrow at ourselves or other people. I think I'll just end with a very brief story which, which is uh, told by uh, Rachel Naomi Remen, some of you know, who's a great, who's a local teacher, who's a beautiful teacher. And she tells the story of this young man in his 20s who had 
a leg amputated because of cancer. She worked with him. Near the beginning of their work together, she asked him to um, to develop a drawing which expressed how he was feeling. In that drawing, he drew a vase, and the vase had these black marks going right through it, as if the vase as if the vase was simply um, totally broken, not really worth much. It was, it was as, um, as if he drew a shattered vase, and that was the end of the story. In other words, he was feeling very negative and pessimistic, just basically overcome and unbalanced, we might say, by the pain okay, and by the situation. Over the months as she worked with him, things started to change. He started to be able actually to go into his emotions. He had tremendous anger, you might imagine. Tremendous anger, frustration, pessimism. He was able to go into those emotions and touch them, feel the anger. As he was able to do that more and more, things started to change. He actually started to have an interest in working with people who had similar problems. Kind of compassion was arising from the situation. He, in fact, he became very inspiring for many people over time. This is, I'm telescoping many months into this, into a short few moments, but he became very skillful and he actually started to be able to access even joy and bring joy in a different perspective to people who had, um, particularly younger people in their 20s who had similar issues. Eventually, and in the, in, in, one of her books, she has the story in detail, and she, she talks about how he worked with a young woman who had had a, uh, a breast removed while in her 20s for breast cancer. And he eventually married her. And it's, it's a beautiful story. Near the end of their work together, she asked him to review that initial drawing. He looked at that vase which it, with its black marks, with a kind of the very dark situation. He looked at that and he says, that's not quite right. And he drew then yellow rays of light coming from the dark cracks. And his comment was, yes, there are the cracks there, but the, it's, it's only through the cracks that the light comes. And I think he's gone on to, to lead a very full life. But there was that, that story really captures that aspect of transformation from being able to be attentive to what's difficult and stay with it. And that requires, I think, the kind of training, practice, and community that we're developing here. So thank you very much. Please. I have a question. Um, you said when we don't face what's painful or unpleasant, that energy drives us? Is mm-hmm. Yeah. To a large extent. The question was um, really asking about this, this way that when we don't face what's difficult or painful, it's often that energy which drives us. 
you know, I think we can see that sometimes more easily in terms of the um, interpersonal examples or the social examples. The way that when a society doesn't face something, it goes underground and sort of, you know, just the way that the whole legacy of slavery is still so present for us in the society because we haven't really dealt with it or even something like Vietnam. We didn't really want to look at that and, and look what's happening, right? It's from not, not being able collectively, which is very hard. It's very hard for societies to do that, but not being able to look at the painful past we continue, basically, we continue to follow the same patterns which led to the problem in the first place. Yeah. Please. Well, talking about that energy that drives us in an interpersonal relationship, one of the things I really have struggled with is um, if you are working with someone yeah. and you're trying very hard to be with situation that comes up to, to not throw that next arrow, to yeah. not judge the, the one that I look at, and to just try to be with it, which I spent a lot of time this week doing. What does one do? I find that puts me in an incredibly receptive state. Yeah. Yeah. And then what often happens with me is I feel almost run over, annihilated yeah. by the other person who is still perhaps trying to manipulate the situation, trying yeah. to re- is being very reactive. Yeah. But what does the person who's trying to put oneself in a more open, empathic state yeah. do with that? That's a great question, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, am I, are we just inviting ourselves just to be run over? <laughs> it's this unilateral disarmament without any protection. <laughs> uh, what? What are yeah? What are tools? Because I think I think we're not. But but on the other hand, it's it's a great question, and I'll, I'll just say a few things, and maybe other people can compare notes. I my mind went right away to uh, there's a story from the Hindu tradition where um, a cobra apparently um, was inspired to follow spiritual teachings, and 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 um, said, "I will not bite and kill people anymore." He was. The cobra was studying with a particular guru, <laughs> and so the cobra didn't, you know. And, but the cobra came back after a week, and there were bruises and wounds everywhere. And um, instead of, you know, I don't think I'm going to last very long. Not not biting people. Uh, what should I do? And the guru said, "I told you not to bite people. I didn't say not to hiss." <laughs> I don't know. That's, I don't know if that's entirely. <laughs> So, so uh, I don't know if I'm suggesting hissing, but there, there, it's it's a question: Is there a way to um, not shoot the second arrow and still uh, take care of oneself? Let's say in an interpersonal situation, um, it's almost like the you know what gives um, almost like the metaphors. Think of the martial arts, because the martial arts are exactly that, aren't they? They're they're a way. Think of some of you. Some of us know Aikido. That Aikido is a martial arts discipline where one doesn't, as it were, shoot the second arrow, but you also protect yourself. Basically, you learn how to be with um, challenging energy coming towards you, partly without taking it personally. You know, so that that's that's one aspect. So, if if you can, um, 
kind of maybe it would be to partly would mean it might mean sometimes just to stay stay away from certain situations. You know, it, it, that might be part of the uh, toolbox, as it were. It's not helpful to go into the situation. You know, maybe because either it's too much for me, or I'm just going to get negative stuff coming at me, and what do I need that for? Sometimes we don't have a choice because it may be a place where we work or a family, right? So, um, and so what do we do then? Well, how do, we, how do we not take personally particularly words coming at us? That's, how do we, is there a way to work internally so that we, it doesn't happen? So we're actually going to be looking at that some in the, in the day long on working with judgments. Because what I personally find is that we can, the more that we tune in to where the comments are coming from, let's say, if we can tune in ourselves to see, okay, I'm tending to shoot that arrow because I'm in pain. You know, like, I really didn't like that. I'm in pain, so I shoot the second arrow. If I can look at that, how that is in myself, I will tend, and this is what I found in my own experience, I will tend when someone else, let's say, is really judgmental towards me, I won't, as it were, uh, go for the hook with the judgment, but I'll, I'll actually tune in, oh, that person's really in pain. And when I tune into that, I don't get knocked around so much. Yeah, please. Well, that's exactly what I've been doing, but then you still, there's still almost like this, I mean, the, the word gets overused, but there's this energy coming at you. What do you yeah. do with that? Yeah, yeah. Even if you're trying to, say, respond out of love and compassion. Yeah. What, what kind of energy is it? Anger. Anger. So it's like, how do we work with anger coming directly at us? Um, physiologically. Yeah, physiologically. Um, yeah. What, what are some responses? Yeah, I remember, I remember actually one, one Zen teacher, I remember, he, he actually had a really angry uh, question once from, in, in a talk, and the, the, it was really strong energy, and he went like this. <laughs> so I, I think it's somehow it's somehow how not to take it personally to let it kind of land and it's, it's this is not easy right? it's not easy but what were some people saying they were saying things like that you know, just get out of the way get out of the way yeah yeah um, please sometimes I imagine Yeah. <laughs> Please. Yeah. Another thing I find that I do if I see if I have some, get some insight about something that's gone wrong or that's a problem interpersonally is I I find myself expecting the other person to also get it and the other person to be enlightened and really see the everything and I think it's really useful not to expect the other person to have any understanding not to expect the other person to see what you see and just let the other person be as whoever he or she is. And that, that might help you relax around it a little bit. I want to acknowledge that you're, you're asking a very challenging question. And we're gonna, we'll be able to start touch on some responses now, but it almost could be a topic of a whole morning, you know. And so, yeah, and so if, 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 that, if it doesn't 
feel adequate, you might want to stay around and other people might want to talk or we could talk a little bit. But it, I'm, Because it's, a, it's really, uh, that particular question is, is a deep one and, and there's a lot, of, a lot of it has to do with somehow over time seeing how I relate to that angry energy and the extent to which I kind of take it in. And I think it, it's related to what you were saying that that has different aspects. It has maybe one aspect is that Cognitively, I kind of agree with what the person's saying, and I have to I have to work that out. So there, are different tools might be reflecting on the situation, maybe reflecting on the causes and conditions which led to that anger. A lot of it is again very much like the martial arts metaphor, is to see it as energy coming towards you that you can both not sort of just yes please enter angry aggressive energy enter into my body. <laughs> You know, it's the somehow, how do you kind of recognize what's happening but not take it all in? Part of it's by seeing the extent to which there are hooks, as it were, within one, which tend to take it in. And that's, that's only done by really deeply looking over time at one's own patterns. So it, this is an invitation not to something which is going to be worked out in the next week, most likely. But it's really an invitation to a kind of deep inquiry over time that we can keep looking, comparing notes, and so forth. Please. Something somebody said to me just recently, I was saying something mm. in anger about something that just happened, and all they said to me was, oh, that must be really hard for you. Yeah. Or it looks, sounds like it would be it's really hard for you. Mm. And it stopped me in my tracks yeah. enough mm. as, the, as the person on the angry person end to sort of look at it differently yeah. and go, oh, yeah, I guess it is. So that's, that's great. If I could just say one thing, and then we'll just finish, if you could be both briefly, brief comments. But um, use of language can be extremely helpful. A lot of times people most want to just know that they've been heard. So there are a few things. Like the anger, if you don't reciprocate in some way with the anger, it's probably not going to keep coming in the same way. If there's some, it's very hard to just be angry when the other person is not feeding it in some way. So there are things you can do there. A lot of it would be skillful use of language. Like, can you say, I'm, you know, you sound really, really angry. I, I imagine that's very painful. Some, you know, not, it's not going to work with everyone, but with some people, an empathic remark like you're suggesting, the person in some ways feels heard and the energy doesn't come in the same way. Let's finish just with these two comments, if you can be brief. That, that a lot of my reactivity sometimes comes from a sense that I'm not going to be okay. Yeah. And I mean, if it's a physical anger, physical violence, it's good to stay away from that. But I think, like you said in number five, when you face something, when you face something that you think is painful, often you find out that you can survive those things. Mm-hmm. And it makes subsequent ones a little less scary to deal with. Yeah. And I think that um, when I have that sense that I'm okay, I can actually take a lot more yeah. without being reactive. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, Jan. Please. I was just going to say exactly what you said, but um, it, mostly in reference to dealing with my children, mm. um, they get very, very angry and very upset. And, and you know, it's common practice with children to identify for them what they are feeling by yeah. saying, well, you really are really angry at me because I said that. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, it seems to really help that situation in much the same way that what you mm-hmm. were saying at the very beginning about um, in your meditation, 
just naming it, mm -hmm. putting a name to whatever that issue mm -hmm. is, can sometimes help sort of yeah. delineations and stop it from being. Yeah. That's beautiful, and it's actually a nice way to close, which is to invite us to be creative. In the next week, we will come back, compare notes. Can we be creative and see, okay, use my own meditation practice as a laboratory? Let me look at that. Okay, what? And then say, okay, like naming. What's the counterpart of naming interpersonally or socially? What's the counterpart? How might I be creative in using the basic principles which I'm studying in the simplified laboratory of my own experience and bringing that outward into the world? That's really, I think, what we're invited to do. So we'll have a chance to compare notes. And for now, we're a little bit over time, I'm noticing. And let's just end with about 30 seconds for a minute or so of quiet time. Letting be present what may have been most helpful from the morning. And inviting your own intention as to how you might continue this in the next week, continue this exploration, this practice, this creative response. So we close recognizing, as would be, as might be very apparent from the themes of the morning, that we practice not just for ourselves, but for others. And may the fruits of our time together, the fruits of our practice, be offered to the world for the benefit of all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.